The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. Bolivians go to the polls this weekend in this month of elections. We'll discuss President Evo Morales and his re-election bid. And with Columbus Day around the corner, a modern view of indigenous rights in Bolivia and beyond. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Mexican authorities discovered mass unmarked graves near where 43 students went missing. Cities all over Mexico and the world are protesting after the disappearance of students two weeks ago. Mexico's president, Enrique Peña Nieto, made a rare nationwide televised speech this week to assure citizens the federal government would bring to justice those responsible. Officials in the state of Guerrero in southwestern Mexico have arrested 30 people in connection with the disappearances. Many of those arrested are police officers. Two weeks ago, police in the town of Iguala clashed with student protesters and fired on them, leaving six people dead. Witnesses say police rounded up many students on buses. After the deadly protests, reports arose of the missing 43 students. Authorities fear that the mass gravesites found this week may contain the bodies of the missing students. The bodies were badly burned, so confirming identities has been difficult. A mother of one of the students says she wants her son back. We want them back. The Guerrero government knows exactly where they are. The police took them. The mayor of Iguala, José Luis Abarca, and the chief of public security, Felipe Flores, have fled and are now considered fugitives of justice. They are wanted in connection to the disappearances. The United Nations is urging the Venezuelan government to release Leopoldo López, the leader of the political opposition party Voluntad Popular. Venezuelan authorities jailed López in February, accusing him of arson and other crimes connected to the country's deadly street protests that lasted for months earlier this year. The UN said López's detention in an isolation cell in a military prison is both illegal and arbitrary. Venezuelan authorities have held a number of hearings to determine whether López is guilty or innocent, and he is considered by many human rights organizations as a prisoner of conscience. A host of a popular British TV program is accusing the Argentine government of trying to kill him. The host of Top Gear, Jeremy Clarkson, and his crew fled Argentina after being attacked by an angry mob. While filming on location, Clarkson drove around South America in a Porsche with a license plate number of H982FKL. Many Argentines were offended by the plates, saying they made reference to the Falklands War in 1982, a war that Argentina lost to Great Britain. Clarkson disagrees. He says the plates were just an unfortunate coincidence. However, Argentine police say they found another offensive license plate in the car after it was impounded. Clarkson claims that the Argentine government orchestrated mobs who were armed with pickaxe handles, paving stones, and bricks. Clarkson claims Argentina gave him permission to enter the country simply to set a trap for him and his crew. The Top Gear crew abandoned the Porsche, camera equipment, and other cars to flee to the Chilean border for safety where they were detained for eight hours. 
The television crew were in Argentina recording a program on Argentina's Patagonian Highway. For Latin Pulse, I'm Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Los Angeles, California. The city with the second-most listeners of this program this week. Apparently, no city can beat Ashburn, Virginia, our loyal listeners in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Thanks to our listeners in both spots. And now, on to our program with a special focus this week on Bolivia. Voters there go to the polls this weekend, and President Evo Morales is standing for a third term. Morales and his MAS party are opposed by businessman Samuel Doria Medina of the National Unity Front. Some polls have Morales ahead by 60 percentage points. We turn to Forrest Hilton at Northwestern University for his expertise in evaluating Morales and the elections. Hilton is the co-author of Revolutionary Horizons, Past and Present in Bolivian Politics. He joined us via Skype from his office in Evanston, Illinois. The latest numbers I've seen are that uh, Doria Medina is polling at about 17%, and uh, Evo Morales won in 2005 and in 2009 with an absolute majority, meaning that elections didn't go to a second round either of those times, and uh, it appears that he's headed for another first-round victory in this election. Are we going to see any changes in this administration, or will it be the business and the course that they've set already? Uh, what are your thoughts about that for a third term for Evo Morales? The candidates this time uh, for the both Senate and the deputies of the um, what's called the Asamblea Plurinacional, uh, the equivalent of Congress, it looks like Evo Morales might well pick up uh, a two-thirds majority, uh, which would give him something of a carte blanche to pass legislation that he may have had on the back burner. Um, And there will also be a total turnover. So there's going to be a whole new slate of folks in office in the legislative branch. And many of them have been pretty carefully selected and handpicked by the president and the vice president and their advisors uh, to ensure that uh, they have a maximum amount of cohesion within the party. Uh, So that majority is likely to be very solid. And uh, I think that they're going to wrestle with some of the same contradictions in the third term that kind of exploded, uh, especially in 2009 during the second term. And so when you talk about those contradictions, that would be contradictions in politics between an indigenous president and indigenous groups in Bolivia? It's worth noting that Bolivia uh, had a 6.7 percent rate of growth in 2013 and in the first eight months of 2014. Uh, rate of 5% growth, which is the highest in Latin America. And Bolivia is forecasted to be uh, to have second place uh, in 2015 in terms of economic growth. So Bolivia's been undergoing the greatest period of prosperity in economic terms in its Republican history. And that prosperity has been linked to a political stability that Bolivia has never enjoyed before either. Uh, So this puts the government in a pretty solid position to move forward with its agenda of uh, developing the country's infrastructure. Um, There's still a huge amount of road building to be done to achieve the type of economic development that the government is aiming for. And during the second term, conflicts, of course, exploded between uh, 
the Morales regime and uh, indigenous movements in the lowlands regarding the construction of a highway that was to be financed by Brazil and uh, executed by Brazilian uh, construction company. So it's very likely that in the third term, uh, Evo Morales will have to find a way to forge a much greater degree of consensus over uh, economic development by consulting with indigenous communities according to the stipulations of the 2009 constitution. So both Evo Morales and his vice president, Alvaro Garcia Linera, have admitted their errors publicly uh, in the handling of this highway construction project. And they have themselves uh, said that they need to find ways of building consensus uh, through uh, prior consultation with indigenous communities before they move forward with any of these projects. So on the one hand, they're very gung-ho about development projects that are already uh, kind of in the pipeline. And on the other hand, they're wary of triggering the type of social conflict that we saw in 2009 around the Tipness Highway construction. Are there any other potential points of conflict between this particular president and indigenous groups that you see on the horizon besides infrastructure and roads? Well, the, the, the ultimate question of autonomy and self-government is one that has not really been resolved. Um, it, it, to some degree, it was finessed in the 2009 Constitution. So there's still going to be a lot of debate and discussion and potential controversy over what indigenous autonomy might mean and what self-government at the local level will look like for indigenous groups. Um, because there is a very strong executive, uh, and there also is a degree of likely to be a degree of synchronicity between the executive and the legislature, and that kind of uh, momentum that Morales has uh, could lead his government to ride roughshod over the aspirations of indigenous communities who are searching for greater autonomy and greater control over resources and government at the local level. Um, but it's also important to say that Evo Morales, uh, like Hugo Chavez, is somebody who has done unbelievably well in the electoral arena, so that uh, representations of the Morales government in U.S. and European media frequently differ dramatically from the reality as well as the perception of that reality in Bolivia. And it's certainly fair to say that Evo Morales has been as successful as he has because he has enjoyed uh, majority support pretty much from day one and he's never lost it. I'm glad you brought up the issue of the view from Washington or the view from Europe. And this particular government has not had very good relations with the government in Washington, D.C. Um, but that hasn't seemed to affect the domestic governing of this particular government. So what can we see going forward about relations between Bolivia and the United States? Status quo? Any change? Well, I think the change, in fact, in this case, would have to come from Washington in the first instance. And Bolivia has made it clear that it's perfectly willing to establish better relations with Washington uh, in the event that Washington decides to acknowledge Bolivia's sovereignty. So I think the ball is really in Washington's court in that respect in terms of U.S.-Bolivian relations during this term. But 
ultimately, the success of Evo Morales' government in this third term will depend on, uh, to some degree, international commodity markets. And if prices remain high and Bolivia continues to reap the benefits of this commodity boom, and Evo Morales and his government is able to continue to deliver growth rates of 5% and above, um, it seems that the third government would probably be as popular as the previous two governments and would put MAS in a position to continue governing even after Evo Morales has stepped out. MAS being the president's party, let me ask briefly but specifically, what are those issues of sovereignty that the Bolivians have dispute with when it comes to the United States? Well, Evo Morales comes out of the cocoa growers trade union movement, and that movement in the 1990s was really considered by the U.S. government to be the biggest thorn in its side in Bolivia because the cocoa growers movement challenged the presumption of the United States government to uh, determine how much coca Bolivians could grow, where they could grow it, and how that coca would be eradicated. Coca, the coca leaf, of course, is has been cultivated in Bolivia for, you know, uh, millennia, and is considered an absolutely integral part of Bolivian culture, not only among indigenous people, um, though principally among indigenous people. So Evo Morales comes out of this coca growers movement, and his government. Uh, kicked the drug enforcement, the, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration out of Bolivia and has carried out uh, an extremely successful manual eradication program of coca and has been saluted by international agencies that are uh, tasked with uh, evaluating government efforts to eradicate coca. The Bolivian government has received uh, very high marks from these international agencies because of its efforts to eradicate coca in a way that does not trigger massive social conflict. And of course, Evo Morales coming out of the coca growers movement is not going to do anything to antagonize his principal base of support, which remains the coca growers movement. But Morales has been in a position to work with the coca growers movement to implement uh, policies regarding the eradication of coca in places where it's not supposed to be grown or the limitation of the amount of coca that's grown in a way that has not led to any social conflict. And that's a first in recent Bolivian history. Um, so I would say that the issue of coca eradication and the possible legalization of the coca leaf, which would entail the rewriting of the UN statutes from 1961, uh, that is kind of a flashpoint. Um, and and were Washington to show any sort of flexibility on the issue of coca, and were Washington to acknowledge uh, Bolivia's achievements in that regard, then it's easy enough to imagine other hurdles or difficulties between the two governments being overcome. You mentioned some international agencies that have saluted the Bolivians and in, in how they have handled coca. Would that be the UN or what would those agencies be? As far as I know, the UN is responsible for that. Um, and I'm not aware of other agencies that are monitoring that. But uh, as far as I know, the UN has been monitoring that and they have saluted Bolivia for their efforts. Thank you so much. Professor Forrest Hilton of Northwestern University, the co-author of Revolutionary Horizons, Past and Present in Bolivian Politics, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, an analysis of indigenous issues in Bolivia. 
Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. With Columbus Day and its celebrations and condemnations right around the corner, this program now turns to an analysis of indigenous issues in Bolivia and beyond reflecting on more than 500 years of indigenous political suppression. We asked Rob Albro for his analysis. Albro is a professor at American University and holds an appointment at the university's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. We spoke to him via Skype from the center's offices in Washington, D.C. The timing of these elections uh, comes on a particular day in Bolivia, does it not? Yes, it, it actually falls on the... Uh, the day, the National Day of Decolonization in Bolivia, which uh, and this word decolonization is uh, uh, part of the, the MAS lexicon. And, you know, when Morales came to power in 2005, one of the ways that he spoke about what he hoped would be his legacy is that he wanted to initiate a process of national decolonization. And he means a variety of things about that. But what it meant firstly and primarily was to enfranchise Bolivia's majority indigenous population. Um, and in addition to enfranchising Bolivia's indigenous peoples, it meant further to embrace a, an indigenous framework, even um, cosmological ideas as they come to us from, from various Aymara, Quechua, Guarani sources, as informing national policy. Um, so the Morales administration has very self-consciously um, presented itself both to uh, Bolivian citizens and to the world as an indigenous administration. Um, and this effort of decolonization has been ongoing. Much of the, the historic legislation that the Morales administration has successfully undertaken whether it's nationalizing key natural resources like hydrocarbons or the new constitution or uh, substantially increasing um, indigenous autonomies or even the uh, somewhat innovative granting rights to uh, Mother Earth, the, the, the Mother Earth law, the Pachamama law. Um, all of these kind of share um, an overall objective of uh, leading the country forward out of its colonial heritage, 500 years of colonialism, um, and doing so by way of enfranchising indigenous peoples. And this is what we, we would expect to continue um, in a next Morales administration. We have talked uh, a bit during this particular interview about extractive industries, and you mentioned hydrocarbons. So in the Bolivian context, are there other uh, extractive industries that are important for us to consider. And uh, in your sense, is there any irony to the fact that this administration um, has had some difficulties with other indigenous groups and we are still discussing some of the same issues that were on the table 500 years ago? 
I mean, yes. I, I think we, one of the things about Bolivia is that, um, like Peru, to a certain extent, like Guatemala, and and a number of other countries for for which um, hydrocarbons and extractive economies loom large, um, you you're talking about an economic model that, in many basic ways, um, is antithetical to um, at least local community indigenous goals around their own desire to control their uh, community or natural territory, um, agricultural land. Um, one of the things that the Morales administration has done is it's tried to follow through more comprehensively on, on um, an agrarian reform, on a land reform in Bolivia. It's had mixed success. It's certainly tried to do things there. Um, but, you know, when there is social conflict, it tends to be around some of the limits that the government has sometimes unexpectedly come upon or come up against, or, you know, in the area of the extractive sector. In, in 2010, there were, um, you know, almost three weeks of uh, protests and violence in the city of Potosí, uh, Bolivia. And for those people who don't know, Potosí is associated with the colonial city of Potosí and the, and the silver mines that were at their height um, the most productive silver mines in the world and that city was amongst the largest cities in the world during the early colonial period. Uh, and so Potosí has always been an important uh, symbolic point of reference in Bolivia in the thinking about the, uh, its relationship to mining. And of course, Bolivia, in addition to uh, natural gas, has always been a big uh, mining country. Um, silver, tin, and a variety of other uh, base elements. And, uh, you know, these almost three weeks of uh, uh, protests, some of which were violent, uh, were erupted because the, the local leadership in Potosí, a, a thoroughly indigenous city, um, had just kind of decided that the Bolivian government had not followed through on its obligations to provide basic kinds of infrastructure and resources and uh, uh, life improvements to people living in that city. And the Potosí, the famous mountain of Potosí, um, has been so mined over the years that it's uh, the so-called Cerro Rico, that it's, it's actually structurally unsound and is near collapse um, and has shrunk considerably. So people are wondering what they're going to do. Um, you know, in the absence of mining. And mining has been something of a sore point, you know, throughout the country. Uh, so you do see these kinds of conflicts. The Tipness conflict was also basically um, a conflict over uh, hydrocarbons because it was an effort to, or the extractive economy, because it was an effort on the part of the Bolivian government to, with the support of Brazil and others, improve infrastructure around um, moving that, you know, getting access to those resources and moving them out of the country for important export and so forth. Um, so so this is a, a continued sticking point and it will continue, I think, to be a problem. Um, one of the things that's happened is that it highlights a tension around government policies on the one hand of so-called buen vivir, or living well. I earlier referred to the ways in which Morales government often frames its policy making using indigenous vocabularies and, and terms of reference and uh, buen vivir or in uh, Quechua suma causai 
is a way of talking about a more harmonious and reciprocal relationship with the environment. And this has been a benchmark of Morales's uh, critique, for example, of global capitalism. And yet, the Morales administration has pursued an extractive economic model because it's the only way to generate the necessary income to also provide the social redistributive uh, advantages that have been so successful and that of course are a, a kind of a wellspring of support for the mass uh, throughout the country. So, you know, in a sense it's, it's trapped. Um, at the same time, one has to say that overall, while this is clearly a tension, it's not a tension such that it appears to undermine national support for Morales and the Mas. Um, Fernando Vargas, who is the Green Party candidate in this upcoming election, was an indigenous leader of the Tipnis resistance. And, you know, he has uh, a microscopic uh, percentage of support compared to uh, the Mas, right? So his Green Party views um, we would think would be more popular or at least capture people's imagination and galvanize more support were it the case that there was broad-based grassroots concern around these things. And there, there isn't. The way it tends to come up is around specific initiatives in, in particular localities. And then there can be, you know, a particular conflict. And, and that has occasionally happened. And that's also the pattern elsewhere. I think in Latin America. Since we're talking about elsewhere in Latin America beyond Bolivia, uh, we see in recent months these uh, fights, violent fights over nickel mines in Guatemala, uh, logging and illegal logging in Peru, sometimes mining in Peru. So is it just that we're hearing more about these conflicts between indigenous groups and the capitalist model, or is is it just... Um, some other dynamic that's going on that, that brings us these, these pieces of news where perhaps we just didn't pay attention to that particular development in the past. Um, there are several things going on. And one thing I would point to is that the question of um, environmental justice um, is mixed up with other questions like climate change and is mixed up with other questions like the extractive economy. And when we look at um, you know, democratic states across Latin America today, we see that one of the regular sources of conflict is, in one way or another, this extractive model. And it's in part because we tend to hear about these things more. But in the post-democratic era, another thing that's happening is that a lot of these communities are taking advantage of the fact that there is... Um, greater legal support and, 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 a, and a growing diversity of, of levers to uh, task the government or, or take the government to task around these questions uh, and to claim, uh, frankly, autonomies and, and local sovereignties in different ways. The, the discussion has been the difference between how, uh, the different ways we might under, understand these autonomies. And, and so far, that sort of problem has been the difference between autonomy as understood to mean your territorial rights and your access to land, but where that land is, is often taken to be on the surface, right? The, the land that you use for, say, agricultural purposes and irrigation versus subsoil resources, the, 
kinds of minerals and, and, and other kinds of uh, fossil fuels and things that the governments are interested in extracting and then using the, the, the uh, profits to uh, you know, engage in other kinds of social pro uh, projects. This is all kind of a new frontier in democratic governance, I think, across Latin America. And it's clearly one of the points of particular contestation. Thank you so much, Professor Rob Albro of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Our guest today, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse. Rick, a pleasure as always. Of note. The Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University is the primary sponsor of this program. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx. Dot com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, producer Jim Singer. And associate producer Gabriela Canchola. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support from Webster University and through the support of Link TV. This program is copyright 2014, Los Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.